Welcome back to the Secret Society of Success. In this not-so-secret podcast, we explore the changing landscape of corporate learning and development so that you can bring successful L&D to your organizations. Here in season three, we're taking on a very hot and controversial topic, generative artificial intelligence. In each episode, we'll be talking to different L&D experts about what generative AI is, how it is already being deployed for learning design and administration today, and frankly, whether or not you should be scared. Oh, by the way, we use ChatGPT to write this intro. Hey, Jason, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Tom. It's a pleasure. So before we jump into learning a little bit more about AI giving you speed and slowing you down at the same time, which I think will be our theme for our discussion today, why don't you uh, give our audience a little background on you know who you are? Yeah, so my name is Jason Gulia. I'm a professor of English and the humanities at Berkeley College. So basically what I do is I teach anything related to English, writing, and the humanities, which is actually the kind of, and we can talk about this, one of the weird ways that I got into artificial intelligence, really kind of thinking about it and teasing it out. So I basically do a couple of things. So I teach all the time, in person, online, hybrid, all the modalities. And the other thing that I do is I work with professors and students and colleges more generally to really think about artificial intelligence. And I've done this really ever since ChatGPT came out or shortly thereafter, um, because I think that now a lot of students, professors, and you know more broadly institutions are trying to figure out what to do in the age of AI. So I do consulting in that space. I do presentations because I think a lot of us are trying to figure out what college and, and what learning in general, formal and informal looks like right, with this with this technology. So that's a lot of what I do. And I work AI at this point into all of my classes. And I try to do it in a way that encourages critical thinking, analysis, all the things that we really want. And yeah, so that's kind of me in a nutshell. And I try to be very, very honest and open on social media and other spaces with just how I'm experimenting with the te- this technology and what it means for learning. And that's me. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Thank thank you, Jason. We appreciate the background. And, and I think we're, you know, given the, the unique nature of uh, your background um, and your your recent focus into, you know, making AI part of how you deliver learning, right? In, specifically in the context of higher ed, I think it's going to be really compelling for our audience, right? Because a lot of our audience um, delivers learning all day long. Now, their 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 audience is a little different, right? Uh, not exactly the higher ed. You know, typically, it's a you know, learning and development organization, a company, or it's somebody working in L and D within a corporate space. Um, but there's so much overlap between the higher ed space that I, I I'm really excited to unpack um, what your background, experience, and what you've learned um, might be able to you know help uh, our audience. Before we get into specifics and some examples and some stories because we we try to spend our, a, a lot of our time on those. We feel that unpacking stories and examples, you know, teases out some of the biggest takeaways. I'd like to start with some definitions. So when we say AI in today's episode, like what what do you what do we mean? What does that mean to you? For me, it really means so AI is anytime we have algor- algorithms or machinery imitating human performance. And when I th- talk about this with my classes and more generally, I try to use that word performance as much as I can because 
I think a lot of times we talk about in terms of thinking, but in the end, we have this technology that is very much a black box. So when we throw something into chat GBT, we get something out. We don't know what sort of quote unquote thinking is there and how it's processed and thing. All we're seeing is input and then output. output. And we can sort of like guess, you know, so, and so for me, that output is performance. And I try to tell my students that, you know, AI isn't so much about, at least for me, imitating human thought. It's about imitating human output or performance or whatever you want to call it, right? So I think that that is essential for my students because a lot of times they are in that thought of, well, they're in that process of thinking about it as thinking. Um, and it just doesn't seem totally accurate to me because there are so many questions about what's happening behind closed doors. And honestly, there's that, but it's also that we don't know a lot about human thought, right? There are a lot of things. We're black boxes too, that you and I can interact with each other, Tom, and I don't know what's going on in your head. You don't know what's going on in mine. So we all have these, these black boxes. So I try to stay away from that language as much as possible. But for me, AI is really about an algorithm or machine imitating human performance. I like that. And I think that the, that example of you know, a tool where you you know deliver an input and get an output is really the simplest way to to describe it, right? And I think that that can also, you know, I think as the way that you're emphasizing it to your students, you know, take away some of the stigmas that can be associated with it, right? And and actually just make it about what is this thing, and ultimately how do you then apply it, right? And how is it applied to our context and what it is that we're doing? You know, Jason. What made you want to jump in and start playing around so early, right? You, like you said, you, you pretty much jumped in right away and made this almost a, a second career, um, which is an interesting thing to sign up for when you've got uh, little ones and then another one on the way, right? <laughs> so what, what what motivated you to do that? I want to talk a little bit about the first time I used ChatGBT. Okay. So right after it came out and it came out in November of last year, it's basically been around with us for a year, a little bit more. And the very first time I used it, so I found out about this program, this thing, no one really knew that much about it. And I started to play with it. And I ran a couple of queries, got some stuff back. I took some assignments, put it through there. And I turned to my wife who was sitting on the other side of the table. And I said to her, the most horrible thing just happened. I just found and saw the future of plagiarism. Like, that was my initial <laughs> thought. I thought I was so negative on this program. <laughs> and that was my initial knee-jerk reaction. I think a lot of us start there or started there. And then I I set it aside for a few days. I went back to it and I started playing with it. And I started to figure out how I can use it to learn things. And that was, for me, that was the lead into it, right? That was the transition. When I started to think about it less as a professor and more like a learner, that's when I started to come to that side. And I tried to think about this technology in a more welcoming way. And then from there, I just kind of kept going because once I had that focus on learning, I started to think about how it can help students, right? And how it can help students practice skills in these kind of low stress scenarios. Because for me, and this was another kind of transitional moment for me, when I, in, so I'm a very shy person. Whenever I'm talking to another person, especially face-to-face, -face, if I'm really testing out an idea, I can't, my mind doesn't allow me to do certain things. Nerves get in the way. I'm worried about being judged. I'm worried about what happens if I just hit pause and say, let's try it again. That didn't really work out, work for me. 
But I found something very freeing once I played with that, with ChatGPT, and then with later AI programs, because now I had this judgment-free zone, right? Good and good or bad, machines cannot judge us, right? At least not the way that we're worried <laughs> about with, as, as with humans. And so I got a lot out of that. And so that for me was something that really I started to work into my classes. And I was actually very fortunate because when ChatGPT came, GBT came out in November, I was actually in the process of going on sabbatical. So I went on sabbatical in January. So that basically gave me about three months to just play. And I fully recognize that most people do not have that luxury. I was in this weird space, this weird sector. When I could just play with AI, I didn't have a publication requirement or anything like that. And so that really got me just thinking about how this technology could be used. So I very much went from that experience of horror <laughs> to acceptance and then trying to figure out how we can mix everything because for me i don't think it's going to be about just working ai into every single thing it's going to be about being purposeful with it and trying to figure out how it can be worked into a larger learning infrastructure and for me that was that was a big those were the big transitional points when I moved from, you know, being horrified by this program that I just came across on social media to actually now using it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate the story. And I, I, I think it's a very relatable one, right? I, I do think that, uh, yeah, that barrier that exists for all of us with new technology um, can often be pretty significant, right? And you're always the initial uh, interaction you know, can be one many times a fear, especially in the context of this, right? But I, I really appreciate, you know, in your story, how you mentioned, you know, stepping back from it for a little bit and then going back and saying, okay, well, let's approach this from the lens of a learner versus the lens I approach it from historically. And, and where can I find ways to get value out of this tool? I think that that's a really um, you know, simple but meaningful sort of uh, takeaway for the audience in terms of how to think about this somewhat intimidating technology. Um, yeah, that's out there. Yeah. And for me, the big questions have to revolve around value, as you mentioned, and also this understanding of ease. And I think that is something particular in some ways to learning communities and people who are really interested in how people learn um, because you go into other sectors and you think about how easy AI is going to make things right? And everything like that. And that's great. In the vast majority of sectors, it will allow us to do things faster, easier, all of that stuff. But then you go into the learning space and we understand, you know, we come out and we say, oh, one of the best indicators of whether you learn something is how hard you worked for it, right? And we know this, has been, yeah. this has been tested, that if you work really, really hard to unravel something and practice something and really get it, you remember it, right? You remember it a month from now, a year from now. And it's actually one of the biggest indicators given just learning science. And we encounter this in classrooms and also just informal learning all the time. And so suddenly that focus on ease becomes very potentially problematic. Um, yeah. And now there are ways to actually, and I, I tried this in my classroom too, use AI to kind of amp that up, right? Through practice. It can actually... You can, well, there are ways to use AI to actually make the learning, I don't want to say make it harder, but make it more challenging and actually makes it stickier in a certain way. But I do think that there's, 
a way in which we can't even generalize about AI because how it's being used and its implications really in many ways depends on the sector. And for us, for you know the learning professionals, whether you're in the college classroom or you're in L&D, in corporate L&D, I think that that focus on ease has a very particular relevance to us and, and importance to us. You know, specifically in the context of the higher ed world, um, you know, where are you seeing AI applied and where are you starting to apply it yourself? Um, maybe let's walk through a couple of specific examples and scenarios because um, I think that those will generate some really meaningful takeaways for the audience in terms of how they can uh, use that tool the same way, but applied to their their life. Yeah, I've seen a bunch of different experiments and now they are starting to get bigger and bigger, which is exactly what I want to see. I think it's for the first year, especially from the perspective of college professors, we saw them started to play with things right here and there. And they were these kind of small examples. And now I think they're starting to get bigger and bigger. So some of the main examples I've seen. So one of the first ways I started being used is chatbots, right? Figuring out if you can have an, uh, an assignment or a reading and create a chatbot that helps students out. So I actually played with this several semesters ago. I was teaching Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven. So I was teaching a general literature course. And I started with that one because it's really hard. Right? And so there's actually something you have to do on the level of reading that helps you out with later things. It actually helps you out with movies and podcasts and everything else. Once you really, um, in many ways, work through your thought, your reading muscles, right? With something like Edgar Allan Poe. And in the past... It's been sort of weird because I would have students read it and we'd come in class, we'd come to class and discuss it or work through it together or we'd do something online and it was fine, but it was very much focused on a couple students. And this happens all the time, right? If you have something that's challenging, which I think it should be, especially, you know, given that course. But then if you open up to everyone, suddenly you have a couple people who are weighing in, who feel who already feel comfortable with reading it, right? Um, and then you lose everyone else. What I did is I created a chatbot. So, and I did this through Poe. Um, I've done it also through Zapier. I redid it through that. And so there's an actual context window that you can go online. You can find the open access version. You can give it the entire poem. They could have the whole thing as a part of its um, knowledge base. And I could have students run things by it, right? And, and students did. They went, some of them asked very general questions, like, what is this poem about, right? Which is fine. Like, yeah. that is perfectly okay as a starting point. And then others, you know, asked very, like, concrete and difficult questions, right? They were trying to figure out the philosophy behind this poem and everything else. Um, and so that allowed students to come in and do that regardless of their level. And they could, regardless of where they started from, they could weigh in on it. And that is an activity I think that can obviously be done in a formal education space, but can also certainly be moved into corporate L&D, right? Giving someone a chatbot where they can ask either basic questions or just move up the, the rungs of complexity, depending on just how comfortable they are with the material. Um, so chatbots are a great way to just help that out. And also just to help practice, right? You can create scenario-based learning with a chatbot actually pretty easily, especially with something like ChatGPT, which is so good at just role-playing, um, as long as you give it like proper instructions for doing that and what that means. Um, and that allows students to kind of try again and again and again and get feedback every time 
they try. So that's a big thing that I know that professors have played with it. Another one that was really popular and still is, is rubric creation. Before AI, if I wanted to sit down and create a rubric for assessing something, it usually took me about four to five hours. I'd have to spend some time thinking about whatever I'm trying to test for, right? whatever I want to see demonstrated. Then I had to figure out how I was going to do that. I had to define everything. right? If I'm going to do something like critical thinking right, or whatever it is, I do very, very concrete in rubric form with what that means, how I'm going to assess it and everything. And it would usually take me about four to five hours. I can now create using a prompt, a rubric in about four minutes. Right? And it allows me to then bank that time. One of the things I try to tell more and more people is that AI doesn't save me time. It doesn't. I, I'm still spending 40 hours a week working. I'm still, you know, a lot of my weekly workload is very much the same. But what, it do, what AI does allow me to do is to repurpose it. So that now, because I'm spending four minutes instead of four hours on a grading rubric, I can be better at my job. So one of the things that I can do for my learners is I can now create personalized rubrics for them. And I can actually do it with them so that they can work with me. We can decide what is important for that assessment, what, how to define whatever those skills are. And we can using a, I've done this with ChatGPT. I've done this with Bing. Uh, I haven't tried it with much, many other programs, but in four minutes, I have a rubric that a learner actually weighed in on. And so they own a little bit of. In the past, before AI, that would have taken me my entire day, right? All of my time. I would have spent, I would have done nothing else besides create rubrics all day. And so now, because I'm able to bank that amount of time, I'm able to just be better and more efficient in my job and do something that was not scalable in any way in the past, even, even just a year and a half ago. Yeah. Yeah, those are two really great examples. And now a message from Mimeo, your podcast sponsor. Joe Sittler kept working past 8 p.m. on Friday nights. As sales development manager at Spring Venture Group, he was responsible for training hundreds of new salespeople every month on up-to-date, customized training materials. The problem was that his local printer couldn't handle all his document updates. For each batch of new hires, he had to spend hours emailing the printer about which pages needed to be replaced. Worse, he had to place his order at least a week in advance, meaning that sometimes he sent his new hires outdated information. That's when Joe found Mimeo. Now he creates workbooks nearly twice the size at half the price of his previous vendor. The best part? Joe's new hires order their workbooks directly from Mimeo for delivery to their doorsteps, taking all the hassle of shipping out of Joe's hands. His Friday nights are finally free. Read Joe's full story at bit.ly slash mimeoprint or call 901-566-8900 to speak to a rep today. That's bit.ly forward slash m-i-m-e-o-p-r-i-n-t. And now back to your episode. Something that resonates with me and I've heard across a number of our audiences, you know, even back to a couple of seasons ago, and we we spent a, a lot of time talking about persona development in the L&D space, right? And the value of a persona, because it gives you the ability to truly understand your audience. 
that's the thing that was resonating with me in your in your example in the classroom, right? And I've seen it, you know, I deliver a lot of training to, you know, our sales team, right? That's by profession what I what I do here every day. Um, and even in a, a more outgoing, assumed more outgoing group like that, in every cross section of a group, there's always going to be the 20 to 30% that is very vocal in any learning space. And then there's the 70% that's not, right? And the ability to use a tool like AI or this custom catered chatbot to go meet the learner where they are and try to drive some improvement, you know, is great because it gives you the ability to meet the audience where they are at their level, right? And let them engage on their time versus forcing an engagement that frankly doesn't make that person comfortable. Um, And you probably get better, you know, I would imagine that you probably have seen in your experience, like better uptake learning wise across a wider audience than you would historically, right? Because, you know, that other scenario is really only focused on that 20 or 30% that starts to really be vocal, right? And then maybe the next 5% that can learn from that interaction. Um, So I think that's really interesting, right? Because that applies to every scenario where you're trying to, you know, create some learning on a particular topic. Yeah, absolutely. And AI at its very best gives us the ability to do things we know we should have been doing for a while, right? Actually, yeah. that we can actually stick to learning theories that we knew in some way, but weren't really scalable. That we've known for decades that personalized learning works. We've known for decades that there are multiple intelligences. And so having people come in and talk in a group discussion, using that as the only way to assess learning, we know that that was not good, right? That wasn't good (laughs) learning science. And being able to personalize the learning experience for students so that everyone is able to, regardless of where they start, they can grow and they they can progress. They can move towards mastery of whatever skills they're trying to master. Um, Now we have the ability, hopefully, (laughs) or getting that ability to achieve that and to actually scale that. And same thing with diversification, that one of the big obstacles has been, how do you do it, right? We recognize that some students are good at speaking, some students are good at writing, some students are good at X, Y, and Z, and same thing with the workforce, and that we should have these different methods of assessment. But then you say, okay, that's great. If you have 10 learners, what happens when you have a hundred or a thousand thousand. or you have a company, right? You have a company where you're trying to assess everyone. Well, no, you can't do it, right? There is impossible. You would have to have a giant team just to do that and let alone to track things, right? That's just to get the assessment out there. Now, if you also want to track how people are doing and come up with these, these learning programs and these personalized learning programs, like then it's just, it blows up even more. And, you know, AI will if we use it correctly, allow us to do that, right? Yeah. Really stick yeah. to learning principles and thinking about what makes learning sticky, what um, gets us to self-reflect, what makes us self-aware, what gets that kind of meta-knowledge that we all kind of want because that's very adaptable in school as as is in the workforce. So yeah, I don't think AI is doing anything different there. I think it's just going to hopefully have us, give us the ability to realize something that we we've wanted for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like the problem of like, you know, a lot of people understand the ideal. It's just that the ideal is not practical. And I think what you're saying is hopefully AI, because of the the, the time, frankly, the time component that it can save you starts to make 
the ideal look a lot more practical. And I think that that's, that could be something compelling, you know, for, for our audience. And a lot of it, a lot of it comes down to principles that I'm constantly going into groups where we start talking about AI and there's a lot of nervousness. And yeah. sometimes one of the best things you can do is just hit pause on the conversation and just table AI. Don't even talk about it for a few minutes and just ask something very, very basic. Like what is good teaching or what is good learning? Right, just like go back to that because yeah. the principles of those have not changed, right? right? Um, I think we're sort of tricked into thinking that they they have because AI is developing so quickly and it changes so quickly, but the human mind hasn't. The human mind takes a really long time to learn how to do things differently, and so these principles of good learning, um, good learning and development, good teaching, these have not changed. And so, you know, just hitting pause for a second, hitting time out for a second going back to those conversations and then working AI in, thinking about, oh, how can I help you learn something, right? right? Then doing that, it allows you to keep the technology secondary or tertiary. And I think that that needs to happen too, that we all, especially with the hype, it is so tempting to make everything AI-centered. And if we do that, we're losing a lot of what we're really interested in, what we're trying to do. Because for me, the technology should serve the purpose, not the other yeah. way around. Yeah, yeah, I totally, totally agree with that theory. Yeah, the technology is what it is, right? It's a, it's a, it's a tool. That, that's, that's the word I always like to use because I think it's, it's about understanding how you're going to use that tool to achieve the outcome you're trying to achieve, right? Um, which is, which is really your decision. I'm curious. You, you mentioned the example earlier of the rubric creation, right? Taking a, a four to five hour exercise and turning it into a four to five minute exercise. And then what you were able to do with that time is is repurpose the extra, you know, three hours and 55 minutes you now, now have back in your life to making maybe just that same thing rubrics that much more effective and personalizing them, right? And, and then making them a much better tool, therefore making you better at your job. Um, I know in my experience, I, as I've personally dabbled with uh, ChatGPT and specifically uh, in a variety of ways in my job, right? And just seeing, you know, how can I use this to make myself more efficient, more effective, right? Um, I'd imagine it probably took a little bit. You had that whole three-month period you talked about earlier, right? To really learn how to use AI, right? I, I found in my experience you know, there's some nuance to the prompts and, you know, you might prompt something, the same thing five different times in a row and get five different answers. Right. Um, and there's a learning curve to that. How do, how do you recommend people start actually diving in and, and learning, right? If they've, they've listened to this conversation at this point and they realize, okay, getting that three hours and 55 minutes back in my life to do other parts of my job, either that I like more or that'll make me more effective. Sounds really compelling. How do I do that? Uh, where would you suggest someone starts learning? My personal recommendation is to focus on skills over tools. If you go online and you look at those lists of all the AI tools that have been released over the last month, it's maddening. I highly recommend that no one do that. No one go and try <laughs> to learn 100 programs for different reasons. Reason number one, and I don't mean this in a negative way, most of them will go belly up over the next six months. Oh, yeah. Right. There's going to be <laughs> yeah. that turning point when venture capital starts to fade away 
And I mean, now over the last year, it's been the case that you go into a meeting with an AI product, you can come out with a multi-million dollar deal, even if you don't have a product, right? They don't, didn't need a prototype. They just needed an idea and they were getting funded. So many of them will fade away. And then there's also, and I know I mentioned this already, this worry that we're really making the tools front and center. So I would say start with the skill Right, whatever you want to learn, or if you're a professor, whatever you want to teach, and then picking one tool to play with. Right, just re I, I think it's actually better to learn a single tool. Well, I would use a foundational one. ChatGPT is kind of the classic example. You can use Claude. There's every indication that that's going to remain a thing. It's being baked into more and more products. Um, Google Bard, if you want, but choosing that one that you feel really comfortable with and just play with it, right? And do it in like small spurts. I think that we tend to think like, oh, I'm going to spend, you know, four hours this weekend learning ChatGPT. And I actually think, and this is just space learning, that we actually get more out of going in, playing with it for 15 minutes, run an experiment, right? Just something that you're not sure if it can do and see if you can do it. Go back the next day, 15 minutes, and just give yourself that sort of leeway to play with it. And I think, so I, I've done this with ChatGPT a lot, and it constantly teaches me not just about that program, but as I look at more and more programs, once you do start to transfer and look at other things out there, you can you can analyze them a little faster, right? You get a sense of what's actually working. Once you play enough with ChatGPT, you look at Bard and kind of see very quickly, oh, this is what it's doing, this is what it's not doing. And I think that just focusing on that one tool and the skills you want to develop. I think it allows us to be in that experimental stage a little bit, and it also eases the pressure, right? So that we're not spending four hours in a weekend learning something. We're spending like 15 minutes playing, tinkering, see what you can do with it. And it also allows you to kind of reflect a little bit more and try to be very honest with yourself that we might all go through hype cycles. And I, I try to do this on social media. I try to write about how I've gone through my own sort of hype cycle and how only now after a year, it's starting to wear off, right? I feel like I'm starting to get to a space when I can assess, oh, that AI use case was actually helpful. That one was not. And so just being honest with yourself about just where we are in the process and also letting yourself fail and being honest that it failed. One of the paradoxes of using AI is that it can allow us to be very efficient. It can save a lot of time, but that's only after you put time into it. <laughs> there actually yeah. is a lot of work that needs to go into learning how to prompt, right? It's not like I, I created a prompt in two minutes, ran it through and suddenly started saving all this time. It did not happen that way. And prompt engineering or whatever you want to call it, is so complicated for a couple of reasons. One, it kind of learns, it takes some learning just how to prompt something. And also the systems are changing so quickly. Right. And this can be sort of depressing. So one of the things that, that I recently did is I retired one of my prompts. It was one that I felt good about. It worked really, really well. I got, I got the outputs I wanted and I put it aside for about two months. I wasn't really using it for anything. I went back and I said, all right, I already have this prompt. I'm going to run it through. And outputs were awful. They were so bad. The system had Very changed so much that the prompt no longer worked. I had to rewrite the whole thing. And so really interesting. 
it's this ongoing process of experimenting and playing with it. That can be rejuvenating. That can be sort of debilitating and <laughs> yeah. hopefully not depressing, but just giving yourself the ability to experiment, focusing on skills over tools because those tools are changing constantly. I think that relieves the pressure a little bit. And yeah, just I, letting yourself fail. <laughs> amen. <laughs> amen. Uh, I couldn't agree more. Jason, I'm curious, if, if you're comfortable, could you share the specifics? Like, what was that prompt? So the prompt that I created that I was happy about is actually for giving um, learner feedback on an assessment. So basically what the prompt allowed me to do was I could read something created by the student. I could put, you know, basic notes, right? So not worrying about proofreading, not worry about anything like that. I can put a basic notes on whatever I'm assessing for that challenge I call in for my students. And then it would spit out, you know, using my own designed template, something that actually just gives a lot of formative feedback to the student. So it's something that I created and, you know, really allowed me to streamline a lot of my feedback. Yeah. And so I put it aside for a few months and I went back in and I noticed a couple of things. The first was that it wasn't following instructions, right? It was jumping over sections of it, which is weird because you think, oh, the, the, prog the program, the base model is just getting better, right? But that actually might have weird unintended consequences that what worked in a previous version worked because it wasn't being literal with my language. So as the model got better, and was actually being more literal and understanding in giant quotes, more of what I was saying, actually my prompt itself was misleading. I actually went to the prompt misleading. and said, oh, I actually see why you did that, right? <laughs> yeah. But you, you only caught it because the model is better now, right? right. In yeah, the past, yeah. I thought, all right, output is good, prompt must be good. And I think we made that, that <laughs> assumption all the time. Yeah. And I actually had to go and I used like structured prompting with um, bracketing and everything else to say, oh, I just want you to do this um, because otherwise it would skip over instructions or it wouldn't write in my own voice that yeah. I found myself having after every generation going back in using capital letters and saying, just remember, use my own voice, right? Because um, otherwise it has all these weird chat GPT-isms, um, which are so odd. Like, I want to commend you for like, no, I would never write that in a sentence ever. <laughs> um, and so I just That's had funny. to, you know, go back and just rewrite it, be very, very literal with what I wanted, which just wasn't necessary a few months earlier with that same model. That that's really interesting, Jason. This has been great. I, I there's I think there's we could probably continue this conversation for another three hours and have millions of takeaways for our audience. Um, but in in the interest of uh, of their time and yours, um, where where can they go to find more find out more about you and what you're up to? Where's the best way to you know reconnect with Jason? The best way right now is LinkedIn. I okay. try to write on there constantly. So if anyone listening to this sends me a message pings me, however you want to get in touch with me. I try to be very responsive with that. One of the things that I've done, especially over the last six months, has been trying to, as I'm experimenting, just share them. <laughs> sometimes yeah. they work, sometimes they don't. And just trying to, to help people out because I think we're all sort of muddying through this very complicated mess of technology in many ways. So that's probably the easiest way to do that. Um, and I have my contact information on there so people want to email me. But the easiest way is just directly through LinkedIn. Awesome. We'll uh, we'll make sure to share your your info in the show notes. Um, and you know, any any what's the last closing thought you'd like to leave leave the audience with today? 
Um, play, play, play. Just keep playing. Don't stop. The this technology as it's changing. Um, I think we just need to learn not to just rest on our laurels, right? Not to just say, oh, I have this figured out. No one does. The popularization of AI has created this weird culture in which everyone was an expert or wanted to be an expert, but very, very few people actually were. <laughs> and <laughs> I, would, I would say that just getting yourself in that growth mindset when you're playing and experimenting and sharing makes all the difference. I think that there's a lot of vulnerability that goes into it. But for me, it's the only way that I learn, the only way that I grow. So I want to encourage everyone to just experiment and play and be welcoming when other people experiment and play. <laughs> that's yeah. that's the other side of it, especially that they're sharing with you. But that's my big takeaway where what we can be doing with this technology right now. Awesome. I love that. You know, just go play with it. Have fun, right? And be open-minded. And I think that there's a, you know, ultimately across the number of examples that you shared today, I mean, the opportunities are, you know, are really limitless. It's a tool that can allow you to be better at your job uh, if you use it effectively. So I think, you know, that inspiration to go play and be open-minded about it and, and use it for the growth that it can create for you uh, personally, professionally uh, is, is, is great advice. So Jason, thank you so much for your time, man. It's been a pleasure chatting. Thank you so much. Pleasure is all mine. Thanks for listening to The Secret Society of Success, a podcast by Mimeo. To find out more about how corporate L&D teams use Mimeo for smarter content distribution, visit www.mimeo.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe to get our episodes as soon as they launch. Enjoy your day.